This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today from Sacramento is Ms. Jennifer Kent, CEO of the Kent Group and former director of the California Department of Healthcare Services. We'll discuss California's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Very briefly on background, since the federal government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic continues to be, as New England Journal of Medicine politely termed last week, laconic, the U.S. response continues to be best understood at the state level. California immediately comes to mind for the obvious reasons. Amongst others, it has a population of 40 million, or 12% of the nation's total. While the state has reduced the number of uninsured by double digits since 2010, California ranked 24th in adults uninsured in 18 at 8.5%. To date, however, California has experienced disproportionately fewer COVID-19-related deaths at 4% of the current national total notwithstanding California having an estimated 20-plus percent of the country's homeless population. With me again to discuss California's response to the pandemic is Ms. Jennifer Kent. So with that, Jennifer, on background, let me start by asking, and I did read about a week ago that California had not yet peaked in infections, but has the state infection rate peaked or has it yet to peak? Um, I think from the data um, that I've been seeing is I think we have hit the peak. Um, infections have been holding in a persistently steady pattern. Um, and in some cases, that's due to just increased testing. Um, there's obviously been a lot of aggressive shelter-in-place orders that have recently been lifted. So I think we're all waiting with bated breath to see, um, given those releases, if we do have a second wave or a significant spike in infections, but for now they've just been holding at a kind of steady pace. Persistent, I guess, is the word we would use. Okay. I will say in my reading, California was early in isolating, and I imagine you would agree that that explains some of the success to date? Yes, I think we did a really exceptional job um, putting in both local as well as statewide shelter-in-place orders. Part of that was predicated by the fact that we had cruise ships that had COVID patients on them and they were looking to disembark. And so we had a very early um, preparation to get those passengers offloaded on the cruise ships. We had them staged at a military base near the Bay Area, but then that just increased both the awareness as well as the understanding that we needed to take you know, much more aggressive actions. And so um, I do have to commend a lot of the both local and statewide health officials that put those shelter in places down so early because it certainly, I think, has shown that it, it, did, it did what it was supposed to do. Okay. Since uh, you ran the State Department of Healthcare Services, that, of course, runs the state's Medicaid program for 13 million or one in three Californians, a disproportionate number who are or will be, uh, sadly, COVID-19 positive. Let's get into the populations that are most uh, vulnerable. What's your assessment, then, of the state efforts to minimize health harm 
amongst the poor, uh, poor elderly, and particularly those we know most vulnerable, those in long-term care facilities? Yeah, so they're very different populations, obviously. Um, I'll start with the long-term care facilities and the congregate living um, facilities. That has been, I think, um, one of the more difficult populations for us as a state to um, either monitor or protect, just um, given the numbers, and I think it's been seen throughout the country as well, is that the disproportionate um, deaths and illness has been from those living in um, long-term care facilities. I think testing obviously um, could have been more robust in those um, facilities, but like every other state, we were struggling with um, testing capacity. The low wage nature of people that work in these facilities has certainly played a significant role, I believe, in the infection rates. Um, and then obviously given the significant um, illness and other frail um, health conditions that these residents already have has certainly played a role in that being a really kind of persistent problem for us as a state. Um, you know, on the homeless side, obviously we had a significant homeless population well in advance of the pandemic. Um, we are a high wealth, high income state with a huge number of low income populations. We have very expensive housing costs. Um, so our homeless population is not even um, similar in nature, right? You have individuals that have um, been homeless for years, and then you have individuals who, through losing a single um, job or shift or having a change in relationship, has led to an inability to secure housing. And so right as the pandemic was cresting, we took a lot of um, steps as a state to try to mitigate and um, secure housing for some of these populations. Um, we activated emergency shelters, we deployed trailers, we um, signed leases with um, motels and hotels across the straight st uh, state to try to put people into temporary shelter with an eye towards long, longer placement. Um, I think it has had some success and obviously more could always be done, but um, these are populations that are definitely um, disproportionately impacted by COVID. Thank you. So the um, the homeless relative to uh, available hotel rooms, I'll just note Project Room Key, the state initiated several weeks ago. Uh, my reading is it at least initially secured, or the initial goal was to secure 15,000 hotel rooms to try and meet the demand um, to find shelter and provide isolation or social distancing uh, for homeless populations. Let me ask uh, to follow up. It's the same effect. I should say too relative to the state. I did read that the governor to try, and I found the word interesting, decompress uh, SNF um, numbers uh, employed the U.S. Navy's Mercy ship to try to mm -hmm. move some, isolate uh, some patients in that way. Let me let me ask about um, beyond frail elderly. We do have a disproportionate adverse effect on minority populations. Certainly, the same in California, I'd imagine. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Um, the state has uh, its exchange or marketplace has covered California. 
in the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm next to certain ran a special enrollment period, correct? That is correct. Do you know the numbers of those that uh, took advantage of that? I believe as of now, up to 400,000 individuals enrolled through Covered California's special enrollment period. Um, I was I was part of the team that helped create the exchange uh, back in 2010. And a lot of what we did back then was to give as much um, both flexibility to covered California as well as um, protective barriers, if you will, um, for the exchange so that um, the health plans could not have um, disproportionate impact on inside and outside the exchange. But um, covered California has always been both treated as and seen as a very um, dynamic marketplace that reacts to marketplace changes. And so definitely when the pandemic first occurred and individuals started to lose their jobs, that board and that entity is empowered to do exactly what they did, which is open up for special enrollment and activate their call centers and their, you know, all of their different enrollment assisters and things to help people navigate that if they have not had coverage in the past on their own and they've always had it through employer-based coverage. And so, you know, we look at Covered California as a really strong um, success story for how we have gotten our uninsured rate down so low in California. Yes, I think the percent's about 12% since 10. Let -hmm. me just note, most states that run their own exchanges uh, did the same thing, held a special enrollment period. I'm sure you're well aware the federal exchange or the administration refused to run a special enrollment period despite congressional D's are arguing that it should, uh, unfortunate, certainly. Let me ask you about um, the effect, the mental health effect in all this. I did uh, read an entity out of Oakland, the Wellbeing Trust, uh, estimated or attempted to calculate the number nationwide of additional suicides. It was pretty wide-ranging. They estimated in this year between 25,000 and 150,000 uh, so-called now increasingly deaths of despair via economic hardship, social isolation, etc. Mm-hmm. What's, what's your sense of uh, efforts made by state and local authorities to try to address this uh, correlated uh, issue? You know, we have a really interesting system um, in California when it comes to mental health. You know, through the Medicaid program, we have um, two different, I would call them delivery systems. Um, One is through traditional um, managed care contracts, and those contracts offer um, assistance to people with mental health issues, and we call that in the mild to moderate range. And then for individuals who have serious mental illness, both pediatric and adult populations, they are treated through a different delivery system that is handled through county behavioral health plans. So we have a special Medicaid waiver in California that allows for those specialty mental health services to be delivered via the counties. Um, on average, between four and 500,000 children and four and 500,000 adults are treated in those um, specialized delivery systems. And then through the Medi-Cal managed care plans, there's about 11 million people that are enrolled in managed care. And so if they have, you know, what we would say mild to moderate 
behavioral health problems, they're treated through the plans. And that's been a steadily increasing use um, since that was enacted in 2014. I think um, given the nature, um, and I'm splitting between mental health and substance use, Mm -hmm. um, both of those areas are um, really hard to work with people when it is an isolating condition to begin with. And then the nature of the pandemic in which we were, um, you know, directing people to isolate themselves, right? You are trying to maintain distance. You are trying to stay in your home. You're not out in public um, due to the respiratory nature of COVID um, absolutely took um, a lot of individuals that were struggling, struggling with either mental illness or substance use and made it even harder. And so I don't know that we have a full understanding or the ramifications of what that has done to individuals in terms of either setting them back or in some cases, tragically leading to suicides um, or attempted suicides. I have a lot of concern around individuals that suffer from either alcohol or um, some other kind of drug addiction. Um, I think it's really, you know, a, a disease that um, grows when you are isolated. And so therefore there's a lot of individuals that have been already struggling and then this has made it even worse. And so there's going to be a, a long time coming for people to come out of both their homes as well as to feel comfortable approaching um, treatment centers or providers for assistance. And I think that there's some attempts, obviously, to do telehealth and to do video consults with people. But again, not everyone is receptive to that modality and it doesn't always work very well. And so there's only so much that you can do telephonically or over the over the computer. And so I really look forward to a time in which we can get more robust mental health and substance use services back out into the community because I do have, I do have some concerns about that. Thank you. Certainly the fallout, behavioral mental health fallout will be substantial, including, as you know, um, substance use disorders, as the feds formally state. Let me, since you are the former um, Department of Health Services Director, how's the Medi-Cal program holding up relative to financing. Obviously, this is a massive strain. I've seen some studies that uh, states are looking at 20-50% shortfall uh, because of reduced um, tax receipts. Uh, and of course, state Medicaid budgets are typically the first or second largest expense. How's the Medi-Cal program holding up? Whew. Uh, it's a little, it's a little choppy in the water right now. Um, and as I always used to like to say, the medical program is an oil tanker and not a speedboat. So it is built for the long haul across, you know, very far distances, but it is not a nimble, uh, thing that you can just maneuver very quickly. Um, the irony obviously in economic recessions is just when, uh, general fund uh, re- revenues are drying up in state budgets. Um, usually Medicaid enrollment is soaring, and so those are diametrically opposed. California is no different. We had a program that was approximately $13 million, um, before the pandemic, and that was with an unemployment rate almost as low as it had been historically. And so, again, back to my comment that California has significant high wealth and high income and yet also has significant 
poverty and um, low income workers. And so the pandemic has done nothing to do good to that program from the standpoint of state general funds. We went from having a surplus of approximately $6 billion in the governor's January budget to a projected $54.6 billion deficit in May. Um, it is it is a deeply um, problematic budget from a state perspective, and Medi-Cal is the second largest general fund expenditure behind education. Um, it's the largest department when you add total funds in, right, the federal matching funds and the local funds. Um, but behind education in terms of general fund expenditures, the budget when I left was approximately $104 billion annually. Um, the governor just proposed significant reductions in Medi-Cal as part of his May revision. The legislature is um, literally, as we talk, um, looking at ways to try to mitigate or avoid those budget reductions for as long as possible, you know, predicated on um, federal funding coming through a next economic stimulus package, um, the economy picking back up. We delayed our tax receipt um, filing date until July 15th. And so they're really trying to say, let's get the full picture before we start to, um, you know, cut provider rates, eliminate optional benefits, do all of the terrible things that you usually have to do in state budget deficits like this. And so, you know, Medi-Cal has to be part of the solution because of the nature of how big it is and how much funding it does need. But then again, you also have this competing demand, which is these are individuals that, but for the program, would have nowhere else to get coverage for life-threatening conditions and basic medication and vaccinations and all the things that are important about public health. And so there's really a tension there, which is how, how can you protect a program that protects millions of people, but at the same time also contribute to a larger economic, you know, solution that needs to be done just because the state is such a large economy. So it's going to be, it's going to be a little bumpy. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Although you'd like to think that the enlightened view would prevail being you can't work if you're not healthy. I will say relative to your 104 billion, I did notice uh, just today that relative to supplemental bills that Congress has passed, California has received uh, $2 billion as provider community. So it's, it's not trivial money, but in context of the uh, denominator, uh, it doesn't go very far. I, uh, my next question is an interpretive. If you search to study or get a better understanding of California's response, I believe it's the governor's web, would have to be the governor's web page. He cites, there's a four pages of bullets, 130 plus in some of actions the governor has taken. And I have to say in some, it's, it's pretty impressive. You can imagine PPE and testing capacity, interactive websites, etc. But it goes so far as, um, I'll just note a few of these, waiving property tax penalties, uh, marriage licenses via, via video conferences, reduced priced meals, support for isolated seniors, stopping debt collectors, um, various amounts of monies, agreement with United Airlines to fly free medical professionals, restricting water shutoffs, uh, banning enforcement of eviction orders, halting intake of uh, uh, youth offenders and inmates, uh, called out the National Guard, voting by mail. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But that's by way of setting up my question. What more 
or what else do you think the state can do that would be effective or what hasn't yet been uh, tried? Whew. Uh, well, I think, you know, the administration has certainly thrown its full strength and capacity and um, every available resource that we have has been deployed. This governor, I think, has been exceedingly, exceedingly aggressive about addressing the wide variety of issues that have arisen, right? It's not just a public health issue. It's an economic issue. Um, there are racial disparities that are highlighted in a pandemic and economic devastating event like this. Um, I think where the state is right now is the only place in which we could get meaningful assistance would be at the federal level. Um, we obviously as a state can't print our own money um, and we have to have a balanced budget. budget right. You know, when I worked for Governor Schwarzenegger in 2008, when we did the recession, <laughs> the last time we had a recession, um, it was really unpleasant. And I know that the federal stimulus monies that came at that point were certainly helpful, but not enough. Um, this governor has been um, aggressive also in letting the federal government know there is more that can be done and should be done at a federal level. We are um, deploying all of the unemployment resources that we can, but yet we still have individuals that are struggling to file claims for unemployment. Um, we have deployed a very aggressive testing um, workforce and strategy that is both um, publicly and privately supported through a joint partnership. Um, but yet, you know, we have a state of 40 million people. And so those testing centers have, you know, been slow to ramp up in their full capacity. People have been slow to use them. There have been questions around who pays for the test. Is it, you know, is it free? Does it get billed to your mm -hmm. insurance? And so I think that um, there's a lot that has been done. Um, but like everything in government, um, it takes a while for it to kind of fully be implemented, right? It's not a one and done or a setup and it's just, you know, running at full strength. I always like to remind people that when we implemented a new benefit in Medi-Cal, for example, it took two to three years to see a maturity in the data to understand if you had actually accomplished what it was that you set out to do just because of a claims lag and mm -hmm. because of an uptake and because of provider education and provider adoption and then patient adoption. And so I think all of these activities that the governor has done to address COVID have been both the right thing to do, but there's also a lag in which some of them may not have the full um, data to support that um, deployment for much longer. Or, you know, people will write history and say, yes, that was absolutely critical that we did that particular activity, but you won't know it for a while. And you won't see that until you look back on history. Like, so for example, like the, um, the halt on foreclosures, you know, turning off people's water supply, some of those things don't naturally come to mind as, oh, that was really important. Mm -hmm. But I think when you look back, you'll go, oh, yeah, that was absolutely part of something that should have been done because it precluded something else from happening that would have been worse. Right, right. Thank you. The um, much discussion now that we're starting to uh, open up again uh, is turning to lessons learned or what might we take away from this public health emergency in longer term improvements in healthcare delivery 
lot of discussion in D.C., for example, about making permanent telehealth expansion or uh, extending these waivers indefinitely. Um, and in fact, I know, for example, the Senate Health Committee wants to do that, amongst others. So relative to lessons learned, maybe phrased modestly, what would leave you feeling remiss if we didn't take away uh, more obvious or parent lessons uh, from this pandemic? What opportunity is there to improve delivery of healthcare in California? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, certainly um, coverage. We have, yeah, yeah, the importance of coverage for sure. Um, obviously, when a, a vaccine is developed, uh, that will certainly also drive home the importance of um, what vaccines mean for public health. But I would say um, the joke among my health friends and I has been what happened over eight weeks to telehealth has, you know, would have taken otherwise 20 years yes, to accomplish, yes. right? Mm-hmm. It was a huge um, boost to the use and deployment of um, telemedicine. I think that um, this has shown providers that used to um, refuse to participate in telemedicine, that it's both important and in some cases just as effective as having a patient come in. I think that it will contribute in a long-term conversation around more efficient use of time and we will get back eventually to a cost containment discussion that has been suspended for obvious reasons during this period. But we will be back to having conversations about how do we lower the cost of care? How do we drive more value? And I think telemedicine, now that it has come into the room, it won't leave again. And so I think that is something that is positive. You know, like I said um, earlier, there are certain either populations or certain conditions that are not um as well suited through that modality but for individuals you know let's talk about frail elderly or disabled what a way to improve their care so that you don't have to worry about their transportation issues in terms of getting them to a physical location if you can successfully accomplish that using a telehealth modality Um, for patients especially in california we are a very geographically diverse state, there are certain specialties that you cannot access except in urban areas. So if you live up in Shasta um, County, you may have to drive all the way to University of California, San Francisco to see a subspecialist at UCSF, but that is a five plus hour drive. Um, So can that be accomplished using telemedicine? Probably. And so Mm -hmm. that would be a really good benefit. Um, There are a lot of low-income populations that have traditionally had a harder time accessing care in part because of transportation issues. So if you have to take two buses and it takes you three hours in traffic to get to a doctor's appointment um, and you have an hourly job that is maybe not as flexible, you know, what are you going to choose? Are you going to try to do that bus route and make it work or are you just going to work? And so I think that telemedicine also plays a really important role in helping people access care. And it takes away the transportation issue that we have struggled with in Medicaid for a really long time. And so you are absolutely correct that it's an exciting advancement of a um, modality that has been around for a while but had not gotten serious traction. And so obviously making it um, pay as well so that physicians are not 
um, discriminating against it because it doesn't reimburse mm-hmm. in the same way is going to be an important policy that should be set at a national level, ideally. And then, you know, obviously I'm very California focused and I know that we as a state are already having conversations around we don't lose anything by continuing this policy, right? It continues to guarantee access. And as long as care is not compromised in any way, why would we go back? And so I think that is going to be an important um, lesson learned. Okay, thank you. We're uh, at, sadly, quickly now, our time. So, uh, Jennifer, I do want to say uh, thank you for this quick uh, overview. I hope that is the case and that there's no second peak here for California. And I wish you uh, and the state uh, success in addressing uh, the pandemic there. So thank you again for your time. Oh, I appreciated you having me on. Thank you very much. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.